oh, here's another tip too, that when I first started pricing out potential sponsorships, when I looked at my downloads per the average cost per you know thousand listeners, which is one of the units of measurement that the industry uses, I realized I would not be making a lot of money for each show. So on the advice of a fellow podcaster, I I didn't price my my sponsorships by um, cost per listener. I, I price it by sponsorship of the episode. And so that includes social mentions. So you get a 60 second host read mid-roll ad. You also get mentions on my social media. You'll get mentions in the newsletter. And depending upon the type of sponsorship, there can be additional um, benefits awarded to the sponsor. Are you not getting the downloads you desire? Unsure about how to promote your podcast effectively or struggling to monetize your work? Well, you've just found the resource you need. Hi, and welcome to Mike's to Millions, the podcast that brings you exclusive in-depth conversations with top tier hosts in the health and wellness industry to help you grow your podcast. I'm your host, Sam Breakgear, co-founder of Podwritten, a podcast booking agency for health and wellness businesses. In every episode, we dive deep into what it really takes to get more podcast listeners, successfully promote your show, and monetize your work. Remember, if you like the show, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us grow, and in doing so, we can continue to offer you valuable insights and podcast growth tips. Now, let's get into it. My guest today is the host of A Certain Age, an age-positive podcast that helps listeners live their best evolving midlife. It does this by sharing the voices of experts and real women with a fresh toolkit for navigating midlife. The show has been running since August 2020 and receives roughly 20,000 monthly listeners. She describes podcasting as her fifth act, as she's previously worked as a TV newswriter for global PR firms on Capitol Hill as an English teacher in Japan and with small startups including her own. She also runs her own coaching company, The Reboot Group, and has helped thousands of executives from Fortune 500 companies grow through better career stories. Katie Fogarty, welcome to the show. I am delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. No, it is absolutely my pleasure. And I have to say, I am really excited to have you on, not only because you have a great show, uh, but also because your background is so diverse and interesting. Can you share a little bit about your life before a certain age and what led you to create the show? Absolutely. Um, I, yes, podcasting is my fifth or sixth act easily. I mean, after graduating from college, I taught English in Japan. I worked on uh, Capitol Hill in the U.S. uh, in Washington, D.C. for a United States senator. I've worked in big and small PR firms, and I used to write the morning news in New York, and I've also worked for CNN uh, on one of their international finance shows. So I've had a range of experiences, but they've all had the common thread of storytelling. You know, I used to tell the stories of my senator's legislative accomplishments and priorities. I told news stories. I've told PR stories for clients, and I love doing so. And my my day job, my current day job, is working as a career coach. I help clients share their professional story on LinkedIn, which, as you probably know, is the world's largest career and business networking platform. And over the years, 
of working with very senior executives, I started to hear a very steady drumbeat of fear around ageism. And this started to bum me out because I don't think that we get older. I think we get more experienced and, and, and wiser and we have more to share. And so the launch of my podcast was really a direct outgrowth of my day job. I wanted to start, start to spotlight the stories of people who are thriving in midlife, who are not afraid of aging publicly or not afraid of aging professionally and not really afraid of aging in all spheres of their life. So that is really the genesis of the podcast. That's awesome. And I really want to pick apart so much. You obviously started in August, 2020. That's quite a wild and turbulent year. What made you think this is the time that I want to start a podcast? Was there any kind of influence from the pandemic at that time? Yes, 100%. So you're correct. I launched the show in August of 2020. We were six months into the pandemic. I, I joke that I managed not to kill my husband, my, you know, my, my business or my three children, but I was really burnt out, like many of us were, from the lockdowns, from the, the kind of the fear that the pandemic produced. This was all sort of pre-vaccine and the world still felt very small and somewhat scary. And I really was craving a creative outlet. And I had been kicking around the idea of launching a podcast for several years, but I honestly thought like, this is such a cliche, everyone's got a podcast and I just didn't do it. And then one day I had had probably what felt like the hundredth conversation that week from one of my senior clients just telling me that they were very fearful of having their dates of their college graduation on their LinkedIn because they were so concerned about ageism, especially given what was going on in the U.S. economy at the time when people were losing their jobs left and right. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what I want to be talking about. I want to talk about this notion that aging makes you irrelevant. I want to talk about this notion that um, getting older is something to be really feared and fought off and hidden. And I just sort of pulled the ripcord and I said, you know, that's it. I am launching this podcast. I don't care if it's a cliche. And by the way, for anyone who's listening to this show right now, who's thinking, I want to launch a podcast and I haven't done it yet. I would say there is still room. Do not let that inner voice that stopped me for so long stop you. There is plenty of room in the podcast space for new voices and and different perspectives and new shows. So, you know, jump in the the, the podcasting swimming pool. Um, and I, I pulled the ripcord and I launched my show and I haven't looked back. I'm, I'm closing in on my 200th episode and it's been a ton of work, but an absolute delight. And I'm, it's something that is, I believe is changing the trajectory of my life and something that I'm so glad that I started with. That's fantastic to hear. It sounds like you built up, or you had quite a strong uh, personal network going into podcasting. What did that first year look like and how were you able to promote your show? This is a great question. So I, I would say, yes, I, I did have a strong professional network and a personal network with the work that I've been doing up until that stage of my life. But launching a podcast honestly introduced me to an entirely new network, particularly that of people who are active in the midlife and menopause space. So any of your listeners who are thinking, I'm really passionate about a particular topic and I want to talk about it, but I don't yet know everything or everyone in that space, you will meet them by launching your show. So don't let that stop 
stop you either. I launched the show with the help of an audio engineer that I knew from my from my community. Our kids had gone to kindergarten together eons ago, and he has an audio visual business where he helps with television and audio production. And I decided to throw some money at this. I hired him to do six shows for me. And I had figured it wasn't an, an enormous investment, but it wasn't small either. You know, I actually put some, you know, put my money where my mouth is. And I, I figured if I took that step, it would force me to keep going. I had spent enough money that I didn't want to abandon this altogether. And the second thing that I did, uh, which I would encourage all of your listeners to do, is to tell every single person you know you're launching a podcast. You know, when you make the universe your accountability partner and you are, you know, vocal about what you're up to, it also forces you to keep going. So th those are sort of two steps that I took that really set the ball in motion and kept momentum going. That's awesome. And now this audio engineer, obviously I'm assuming they took part of the editing, but what jobs did you cover throughout this time and what jobs did you outsource? I did everything myself and it's it's as time consuming as it sounds. So for people who are thinking about doing a show or the beginning stages, you know, creating a podcast is a lot of work. So many things happen before you hit the record button, right? You have to identify a guest, you have to go back and forth with scheduling, you have to prepare for the interview, you've got to study them. In my case, I'm often listening to podcasts they've been on. If they're an author, I'm reading the book that they've written. If they are a social media influencer, I'm, you know, I'm spending time on their social accounts. I interview a lot of doctors because I interview a lot of experts who help women thrive the challenges of midlife. And so I spend a lot of time on their websites or, or researching the topic topics that we're going to talk about because I've covered a range of issues. So there's a lot of prep that goes into it. Then I, you know, record the show. The engineer, who's wonderful, a great um, guy named Dave, records and he edits in the room and he hands me a sound file. And that's a ton of work on his end, but then the work begins anew. So once I have the show firmly in hand, which has taken me, I would say anywhere from 10 to 12 hours to, to prep for in terms of scheduling, identifying the guest, you know, uh, all the prep work, I write the intro that I'm reading and then I write all the questions in advance. I don't always stick to them, but I, I, I go in prepared to have a conversation. So that's anywhere from 10 to 12 hours of work. But once the show gets um, handed to me as a sound file, I then upload it to my podcast hosting platform. In the past, I used um, a hosting platform called Buzzsprout. I'm now on something called Omni Studio, and I can tell you a little bit later about why I shifted if you're interested. But when the show gets posted, I then create all the social media assets that I share on social. I do an Instagram real recap every Sunday to follow my week show. My shows air on Monday. So throughout the week, I'm sharing social media assets. I end every week with an Instagram real recap. And during the week, I also create a newsletter that I send out that lets my newsletter um, subscribers know that there's a new show that's live. I'm not in the business of creating a very robust, gigantic newsletter, but it simply lets my listeners know that there's a new episode that's out. And then I usually provide a few links to content that, you know, surrounds and supports the topic. So if I'm, if I'm talking about like pelvic floor health or osteoporosis or, you know, dating after divorce, I'm sharing other links to newsletters, resources, podcasts, books, or products that help 
the listener get really like a 360 experience about whatever it is that we're talking about that week. So that that too is an enormous amount of work. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you've got a very full calendar, a very comprehensive plan as well to how you approach this. I'd be interested to know how do you balance working on this podcast and your coaching company? Um, that's a good question. And I haven't, <laughs> I have not perfected the balance by any means. Um, you know, I will be honest, I work seven days a week. So I'm not working a nine to five calendar seven days a week, but I am working every single day on a different parts of, I, th I think that's sort of the life of many entrepreneurs. I don't mean to glamorize it. There are definitely weeks where I wish it weren't so, and I wish there was more sanity in my schedule, but on weeks when it feels overwhelming, I remind myself that I've chosen this. You know, nobody is making me podcast. It's something that I love to do and that I want to be doing. So you know, I need to fit it into my life. Sometimes I, you know, I'll have to say no to certain things like social events. Sometimes it's, it's tricky. It's a bit of a balance. I do try to make the calendaring a bit more manageable by recording multiple shows at one time. So for example, tomorrow is Friday. I don't, I'm not sure when this is airing, but uh, tomorrow is my Friday and I'm going in, I'm recording three shows back to back. This makes sense for my studio. It allows me to, to book a block of time, which is something they prefer. And it also allows me to then have three shows in the can. So I've got more breathing room during the, the week. If people are, are kind of new or thinking, you know, if you're in launch mode and thinking, um, how do I get going? I definitely recommend launching with four to six to eight shows already recorded before you start promoting and socializing the shows, because you will find a week goes very quickly. And if you're looking to have a week's cadence, you'll have like the next show will be upon you before you have breathing room. So when you can batch your work together uh, in terms of recording or having shows, that can be helpful. We're recording this at the end of December. I already have all of my shows recorded through the end of January. So that too gives me breathing room. That sounds, yeah, like very smart in the sense of, I know batching is a very common approach that a lot of podcasters take, and it really does help if you can squish them all into one day. And yeah, you're right, a week goes so fast. I also really appreciate your openness about working seven days a week because that's something that I found myself coming up against, uh, certainly as I balance all the things that I do as a business owner and obviously launching this podcast. And I feel like I had been maybe disillusioned in the past because before taking on these uh, projects, I've seen so many podcasts and there's so many out there that stay like, you can build a million dollar business and just work 20 hours a week or something like that. And it really did make me think like, am I doing something wrong? Like, I know I can be more productive. I know I can be more efficient. I think everyone, no matter how efficient they are, can increase their efficiency. But I still don't think that I'm someone that's lazy or procrastinates. So it is also really nice to hear that you're doing so many things and you do it in like a, a time frame that is understandable or realistic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because I spend time on the online space, I've seen a lot of online course creation, you know, people who promote th their courses, they promote their podcasts, and it does make it seem like it's easy to to kind of launch something and create money or build momentum. But I, I have found just that it's it's hard and it's slow going. I, I don't think anyone should should feel badly that there it takes a little bit of time to build momentum. I mean, I'm sure, yes, occasionally people, things explode or you hit the right note or, or perhaps 
they have cracked some sort of magic code. But I think for the most part, um, it's slow momentum. And, and I've, I've actually been surprised to learn this. I mean, until I launched a podcast, I didn't really know much about measurement and metrics and what it looked like. My show right now is in the top 1% of global downloads, something I'm very proud of. But it took three years. I'm closing in on my 200th show to get there. And audience development is slow. You know, it takes a while to build momentum. <laughs> Interesting. And how have you monetized it or earned revenue from a certain age? Yeah, I'm happy to have this conversation because I think there's a lot of mystery and there's a lot of misunderstanding behind podcast monetization. And again, you know, I, I am an expert in my show only, so everyone should take this with a grain of salt and do their own fact checking. And everyone's got a different reason for starting a podcast and different uh, definitions of success, both monetary and, and personal and professional. So everyone needs to bring their own calculus to this equation. But my, my very first podcast sponsor came into me inbound. It's It was a menopause company called Kendra. So my show is called A Certain Age. It spotlights women in midlife and it spotlights experts who help people thrive with difficulties. So I have a very niche audience. It's women who are either in peri or post, perimenopause, menopause, or, or postmenopause. So if you are a menopause company looking to reach an audience, that is my audience, right? I, you know, I don't have super young people or, or men or, you know, so it's a very specific audience, which I think can make it a little bit easier to catch the eye of, of sponsors. If you have a general interest show, you probably need massive downloads. So in any event, Kindra, this menopause essentials company, they sell products to deal with the um, symptoms of menopause, came to me inbound and said, we would love to sponsor 16 shows. Sam, I almost fell over. I was like, you're kidding, really? Like, I, I only had six or seven episodes at that point. So I was surprised and delighted, obviously. And they're a phenomenal brand run by great women. And they came on and sponsored the first 16 shows. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is like more than just a fun creative project. I'm off to the races. And let me tell you, I had to go chase every single sponsor since then. They were the first person to walk in the door. And then after that, I really needed to put the work in to go after sponsors. So here's an idea that worked for me. Occasionally, I would get pitched by a potential guest who I did not have space for on the show per se. But I was able to say, if you're interested in reaching this audience, consider becoming a podcast sponsor. So this worked for a couple of companies that came on as sponsors. They agreed rather than be a guest to be a sponsor of the show, which was one way to um, kind of line up sponsors. And then I, you know, I just did my homework. I figured out what are the brands that want to reach my audience. I went and found the right contact. I did that by either spending time on their website or LinkedIn. You heard me say earlier in the show that LinkedIn is my day job. So I know enough to know that any company that's on LinkedIn lists their employees. I was able to find typically the, the person on the staff who handles either maybe communications or influencer marketing. Um, if they're a very big brand, they might even have somebody who's specifically doing podcast stuff. And I was able to you know get an email and send my materials. I would say anyone who's interested in working with sponsors probably wants to create a media kit for your podcast. I have both a media kit for the show that talks about me and uh, sort of the topics that I cover and the shows that we've had and my downloads and the guests that I've had, but I also have a sponsor rate sheet. You'll want both of these tools to be handy so you can send them to prospective sponsors. 
but it's work. You really have to try hard. Oh, here's another tip too, that when I first started pricing out potential sponsorships, when I looked at my downloads per the average cost per you know thousand listeners, which is one of the units of measurement that the industry uses, I realized I would not be making a lot of money for each show. So on the advice of a fellow podcaster, I I didn't price my my sponsorships by um, cost per listener. I, I price it by sponsorship of the episode. And so that includes social mentions. So you get a 60 second host read mid-roll ad. You also get mentions on my social media. You'll get mentions in the newsletter. And depending upon the type of sponsorship, there can be additional um, benefits awarded to the sponsor. I also make sure they have category exclusivity. So if I'm working with a menopause brand on one show, there's not going to be another menopause brand advertising on that show and sometimes not you know, for that month. So there are other perks that are offered and that has allowed me to command a rate that is probably four or five times the multiple of what I would be getting if it was based on cost per download. Having said that, you know, I still don't cover all the costs of the show. I record in a pro studio. I have to pay my sound engineer for the room and for his editing. I pay a transcript editor to help me um, take my AI generated transcript and clean it up. I'm looking at 30 to $40. I've got hosting fees and um, I have opportunity costs. You know, I am spending, as I outlined, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 hours on a show, depending upon what it, what it takes to prepare for that. And so the sponsorship rates certainly aren't covering my time yet. Well, I think you've approached in a really smart way. I love the things that you mentioned, like sponsor for the show and the exclusivity. I do want to know, do you ever find that this show or hosting the show, producing it feeds into your own coaching company? Or do you strictly look to potentially maybe just make a certain age profitable at some point and not and keep it sec- separate from the reboot group? Right, such a great question. Um, so I, I, I think that for me, the, my two professional offerings right now are pretty separate. What I do as a career coach, working with very senior executive and business owners on their professional branding and LinkedIn, it's not necessarily the same audience that's tuning into my podcast. So. One is not necessarily fueling the other. Having said that, having the podcast has opened some other types of professional doors for me because I have had almost every major midlife and menopause, say doctor and kind of voice on the show at this point. I've had, you know, people ranging from like uh, the American television celebrity, Stacey London on the show talking about midlife. I've had all the big menopause doctors on the show. I've really created a wonderful network of people who are active and care about the things that I care about, you know, sort of thriving in midlife. So that has opened some doors to me. I've been invited to be on the uh, the Flow Health Advisory uh, Board. Flow Health is an arm of She Media, which is one of the sort of largest providers of women's um, medical and, and sort of lifestyle and wellness information in the U.S. They've got an enormous reach. And I was recently asked to join Join the board of the menopause nonprofit advocacy group, Let's Talk Menopause. So those have been wonderful um, professional developments because I'm connected to the people who are active in that space. Although that hasn't like driven my day job business per se, although I'm not doing the podcast to necessarily drive new client work. But if somebody is considering launching a podcast to drive client work, I, I definitely think that's possible. Yeah, it sounds like you've done an incredible job to get so many opportunities out of this networking. 
uh, experience of, of hosting this podcast. And also, you said that you're in the top 1% globally. First of all, congratulations. That is a fantastic result. And I'm curious to know, like, how did you get there? What are some of the most successful steps you think that you've taken to promote a certain age to get it where it is into that 1%? Well, so when I first launched the show, there's something called Listen Notes, and it's a little bit like the Nielsen ratings of, of podcasting. It kind of measures downloads. And when I first started, my mother called me one day and said, Katie, you're in the top 3% of global podcast downloads. And I like was like, how do you know? And it turns out that she had Googled and she had, she discovered Listen Notes. And so I've seen my show's ratings grow. What I learned is that most podcasts have fewer than 100 listeners ever. And so if you're able to get more than 100, you're able to move up the, these ratings. I'm probably averaging 4,000 downloads an episode right now, which is what's moved me into the 1%. But you need to be in the top 0.5 or top 0.1% with north of 50,000 downloads if you actually want to make massive money. So there's still a gigantic gulf between where I am and where I would need to be. The show is getting cumulatively right under 20 and sometimes over 20,000 downloads a month. Podcasting has a very long tail. Sam, you probably know this. People download it um, a lot the first week when they're subscribers, but my early catalog, my back catalog is still being downloaded. Um, you will see podcasts being downloaded, you know, up to three months at a time. And like I said, I've had shows that are three years old that still receive downloads every single week. So to answer your question about ways to grow the show, I made a concerted effort in year two to uh, book guests that have um, their own robust social followings. This allows them to share the show with their own networks and, and therefore let their networks know that the show exists. So that's one way of doing it. Number two, um, I work with guests that really want to promote the show and, and want to be on the podcast because they have their own projects to promote. So incredible guests are authors. Authors have to work very, very hard to get their books out and about in the world. The publishing industry really puts a lot of the burden on authors to promote their own books. So they make wonderful guests. They're great storytellers. Podcasters make wonderful guests because they are good on a mic and they know, you know, they know what to do and how to tell a story. So I would recommend that. And then three, you know, social. At this point, I barely ever use my own Instagram. I'm like very over Instagram, but I use it because I need to promote the podcast and I do a newsletter. So all of those things help. Having said that, I have not cracked the code on how to like really blow the audi like audience development out of the water. So all of these things have moved the needle for me. I've seen the show grow over uh, the years, but I, by have no means, have I figured out, you know, what the the secret sauce to just, you know, a rocket ship audience development is at this stage. No, I mean, I that's why I want to have you here, and that's why I have these conversations because I don't think there's any one way to podcast, uh, and everyone does things differently. So I think everyone makes their own secret sauce in to some extent, and you have unquestionably moving the needle further than most like you mentioned that's exactly why you're in the top one percent i also want to say i believe and correct me if i'm wrong but you have guested on other shows correct yes i have and i and i i love doing that because it's it's always fun to spend time with another podcaster and i know it's a great way of getting in front of another audience too. I certainly don't think it can hurt to be on somebody else's podcast, but I'm not sure that it's that it drives like massive engagement for your own show. Interesting. And 
with these shows that you pick, what's the process like to, do you pitch yourself or do they pitch you? I should probably be more proactive about trying to get on other people's shows because I'm, you know, have two jobs, three kids, a pandemic puppy, you know, my, my, my plate is pretty full. So I have not done a terrific job of, of pitching myself to other podcasts. So at this stage, I'm mostly just accepting people's invitations. You know, when, when somebody reaches out to me, I'll say yes. But I, you know, if I, if I had more time, <laughs> if I could wave a magic wand and have 25 hours in the day you know maybe I would be pitching myself I mean it is a lot of work I mean there's a reason people hire me to do it for them and you do it well I would say that I I, I'm on the receiving end of bad pitches every single day and the pitch that really kills me every single I just got one yesterday it is when if anyone took five seconds to look at my website or my Instagram you would see that I feature female guests or female identifying sort of non-binary guests period and I'll get uh, pitches that will say things like Robert would be so perfect on your show and I'm like if you spend five minutes you would know I have never and will not be featuring Robert the show simply features women that to me is a waste of somebody's money. So if somebody's on this show thinking, I would love to work with a podcast booking agency, do your math, work with somebody like Sam, who does a great job with his pitches and, and do your due diligence because I'm on the receiving end of bad pitches a lot. Thank you so much for those kind words. And I totally understand what you mean because before becoming a podcast booking specialist, I was a podcast host. I still am. I, I feel very much like I identify in both categories. I love everything to do with podcasting. So I love being a host i love being a producer and i also love making connections uh, and working on behalf of people because i do feel like the bar is so low because there are so many people out there that don't take the time to really look into shows and for me it's something that i'm passionate about i want to do this well and i believe if a job's worth doing it's worth doing well so i really do invest the time to like listen to episodes look into what the guests can speak to really speak to the show look into the host i really do like a deep dive and i invest a lot of time where Whereas I know from my experience of like um, working with PR professionals from other companies that it's it, a lot of the time they take the approach of throw enough mud at the wall or whatever you want to say and something will stick. The spray and pray. Yeah. You know, yeah. I will share that. I, I know how hard it is to pitch. I have worked at PR firms. I've had to pick up the phone and cold call journalists and assignment editors at different you know news outlets. So I know what it is to pitch somebody, which is probably why I also get really irked by bad pitches because I, I know you have to put the work in. The second kind of pitch that's ineffective and which I'll just share with your listeners in case they want to work on their own is that if somebody has just done a show on the topic, like my show is all about midlife, but it's general interest. I cover a range of topics. And again, a pretty quick review of my social media or the website would show that I move from topic to topic. So if I've just done an episode with a dermatologist on caring for midlife skin one week, I'm not looking to, to return to that topic again for several weeks to several months. And so I'll get a flurry of pitches that are exactly like the guests that I just featured. And, you know, it's not to say I'm not going to return to that topic, but I think the pitch should be cognizant of the fact that that topic was just covered and should say, you know, when you next return to this, or I see that you just featured a cardiac surgeon, you know, when you return to cardiac health, will you keep us in mind? And the answer, of course, is yes. But when somebody thinks that that pitch is the right one to make for a shorter time frame, 
It doesn't work that way. I need to move from, from topic to topic. So I would say that people who are looking to get on the show should really check out the cadence of what the, the show is covering and how often they're repeating topics. Some shows are very specific. There are, you know, midlife sexual wellness podcasts. All they do every single week is talk about sexual wellness and, you know, you know challenges to sexual dysfunction. And they, they do it so well. But for, for shows that are very, very topic specific, you can pitch something that's just been covered. But if it's general interest, recognize that your pitch may be falling on deaf ears. Yeah, I've experienced that myself as a host where you, it, exactly as you said, you publish something on a topic and then suddenly you get a, a flood of emails almost pitching the same sort of guest because they see it as an opening. Personally, I have one of two approaches. Either I listen to the episode and I find out what hasn't been discussed, what's a unique angle on this that like really wasn't covered at all that the person that I'm pitching could maybe cover in the future. Like rather than showing the same topic or just saying this, you, you had someone that spoke about this, I got someone too. It's like, no, what stone was not overturned and what can you speak about? Or I'll take a note and be like, okay, so they do talk about this topic. That's a good sign. But it's not possible to pitch them now. Maybe look back in six months and approach them. That's really great that you brought that up. Sam, that's very smart advice. And and I think that I would I would also share that when I get an incredible pitch, I take notice because as I said, I get pitched every single day. And I have since the show launched. I remember my first inbound pitch. I was like, how do they know I exist? But people are able to find you pretty easily. And I get pitches and pitches every single week. But Every once in a while, when I get one that's so well-written, I pay attention to it, I'll respond to it, even if I'm not going to be able to say yes to the guest because I appreciate the care that went into it. One pitch that I received that was effective was from a, um, I think it was from a publicist. The pitch shared that she'd listened to a couple of recent shows and she said, I really admire what you're doing and, and spotlighting and making visible women in this age. I just wrote a, a podcast review for you. Check it out, even if we don't wind up working together. I keep doing what you're doing. And I thought that was fantastic. As a podcaster, Apple podcast reviews are important. You want to get good ones. You want to have people rating and reviewing the show. And the fact that she let me know she had done so as part of her pitch definitely made me pay attention. Yeah, those are so important. And it's funny because they take so little time to do, but they are so valuable to podcast hosts. So it's definitely something which I think anyone listening, it doesn't cost you anything, maybe like a minute or two, and it will go so much further than than you can ever know with the host. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. You were on Buzzsprout, but you're, you have now gone on to Omni Studio. What made you switch? I joined a small podcast network. So I had the great pleasure of having a phenomenal writer, author, Jane Green on the show. I don't know if you know her name. She's, she's English, but Jane is English living in, in the U.S. She has written 18 New York Times bestsellers, and she has written many more books beyond that. But, you know, 18 bestsellers is a pretty uh, phenomenal stat to have. She was a guest on the, the show to talk about her most recent book. And, and to talk about the fact that she too is trying new things on in midlife. And she was launching a small uh, podcast network that was going to feature female led stories, both um, fiction, kind of narrative fiction, which is what Jane writes, and female voices. And after we recorded our show, Jane said, this was fantastic. You're very well prepared. Uh, I've been on lots of shows where people are not, and I would love to have a conversation with you about 
joining my audio network that I've launched with a friend. So after some back and forth, um, I learned that Jane has teamed up with somebody who's got a, a background in audio and in podcasting and has worked in radio uh, most of his life. And I joined their network. It's called the Emerald Audio Network. And Emerald's um, podcasting platform is Omni Studio. Now, I don't know if any podcaster can can get on the on the platform. I, I have learned that its background is in radio, and most um, large radio stations in the U.S. use the platform. Um, it, it may be more of an enterprise than a than a personal podcasting platform. But when I joined the network, they had me switch my show over to Omni, which is where it's hosted now. I will say though, I loved Buzzsprout and I miss it because it had some really, it has a great dashboard. It's very user-friendly. Omni is user-friendly too, but it's, it has, um, fewer the bells and the whistles that like a little individual podcaster like myself liked. I mean, I loved seeing where all the downloads were coming from around the world. And, you know, that was super fun. So I I think Buzzsprout is a great and very user-friendly platform. That's awesome to hear because it seems like there are so many options out there. It's hard to know what's the best one to go for, especially when you're starting out. And really, my last question is to you. I want to know, like, what do you think it takes to create a successful podcast? I think the number one thing is consistency. You know, you have to train your audience to know what you're about, to know when to expect you, to be excited. And it, you know, having worked in PR and sort of adjacent to marketing and advertising, you need to be repeatedly in front of your quote unquote customer, you know, in order to build loyalty and and to capture attention. We have a, a really busy world that we're all living in. There's a lot competing for our attention and our, our brain space and our ears. And um, I think showing up every single week is the, the number one thing you need to commit to doing. And I, I would say number two would be you have to enjoy it. You know, like it's it's a lot of work. So you have to love what you're doing. That enthusiasm for the topic and for your audience and for your listeners shines through. I have had so many people when I've met them in person at different events I've been going to come up to me and say, I feel like I know you. And that's such an amazing compliment. And that only happens when you're really, really excited about the work you're doing. So I would say consistency and like true enthusiasm for your project, you know, as for the cornerstones, they're foundational for, for, for building. Yeah. And I can imagine that enthusiasm really keeps you motivated during, especially the earlier period when you're probably not getting that many listeners to start with. Exactly. And you're, you know, it, it can be slow. It can be, it can be slow growing. So. Exactly right. Excellent. Well, you gave some great pieces of advice there, but say, for example, someone's doing the housework and they maybe haven't been paying their full attention and they're listening now, if they could just take one piece of advice away from this uh, conversation, what would you, what would you suggest, Katie? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to give you two, even though you only asked for one. And my, my number one piece of advice is just do it. Just, just do it. If you've been thinking about doing it, do it. Uh, get out of your own way and just get started. So that's number one, go for it. And, and then number two, I would say, um, you know, just sort of be realistic about the the amount of t- time and energy it takes. So you want to make sure that you have the bandwidth for the, the regular consistency and cadence and the work that it takes to really uh, continue the show, to grow it, to scale it, to, you know, have it reach the ears of the people that you're creating it for. So but the number one piece really is just go for it. Get in action. Get out of your own way. Do it. 
<laughs> That's good advice. Yeah, because it can be one of those things as well where people build up and be like, I'm going to do this or how should I do this? And a lot of the time you realize that you learn so much faster when you go for it. Totally. So it's, it's the best approach. And as long as you accept, the first few episodes might not be the best episodes I ever put out. But you know what? I'm going to learn as I go. And they're going to get buried further and further down your channel. And the episodes you do put out are going to get increasingly better as long as you just keep up that consistency. Yeah, 100%. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, I would highly recommend everyone goes and checks out A Certain Age. Please leave a review for the show. And Katie, if people want to keep up with the work you're doing personally or reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? For podcast, uh, you can come find me over at acertainagepod.com. I'm on social, on Instagram at acertainagepod. And um, if you are looking for some LinkedIn makeovers, you can find me at therebootgroup.com. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks for joining us today. Remember, you can find more helpful resources to grow your business with podcasting on our blog at podwritten.com and on Instagram at podwritten. You can also find a full transcript for this episode on our website, so be sure to visit podwritten.com or follow the links in the episode description. Until next time, stay healthy, happy, and successful. <laughs>